disciples. If we talked about the power of God's Word, why don't we read God's Word and learn a little bit? We're going to be in Luke chapter 11. Um, we're continuing in one chapter, verses 1 through 4. We, we looked at it a little bit last week. We'll uh, continue um, in Luke 11, 1 through 4 this week. So, well, I know parents are a little bit relieved for... Because school is back in session, so that's kind of nice. And teachers are all back at school again and getting going. Uh, we got seminary, got some seminary students. When do you guys start? Friday? Some of you start Friday? Oh my. This Friday, you got school coming up. Charlie and Sondra don't start till next month. So we've got school's back in session. I guess that's good. Whether you're part of, whether you're homeschooled or whether you're uh, in seminary or whether you're at the Christian school or at the public school, school's back in. But today, we are also going to go back to school. We're going to go, however, to the school of Christ. Because our text today begins with the request by one of the disciples of Jesus saying, teach us to pray. So, I suppose, if you're going to have a professor teaching you about a subject, you should probably, it's good to have the best professor ever. And so, I would assume then Jesus, being the Lord of the universe, knows best how to pray to the Lord of the universe. And so, here we are in Luke chapter 11, verses 1 through 4, and we are continuing this idea then of Christ teaching his disciples to pray. Let me just say this. We're going to be talking about prayer. We talked about prayer last week. We'll talk about prayer this week. And we'll at least talk about prayer again up through next week. And one of the things we we addressed last week was as we begin this, what we often call the Lord's Prayer or sometimes called the Disciples' Prayer or perhaps more accurately, the Model Prayer. However you want to designate it. Last week we, we looked at this and we looked at the first two statements. Well, let me just give you a little bit of review. So one of the things we looked at is that this is a model prayer because it is not um, something that people, you don't have to, there's no magic in this prayer. In other words, you don't say it and think that somehow there's some sort of special formula. And if you say it this way and say it in the right way that God is going to to move spectacularly. This is a prayer that God, that Jesus taught us, taught his disciples to use to pray. It's a model prayer. It doesn't mean we can't use it as a prayer. We pray it from time to time, but it's a model prayer um, and it's used as a guide. And one of the reasons we are one of the ways we determine that it's not that it is a model prayer and not some magic prayer that we say over and over again is simply because if you look through the entirety of the New Testament, you will never see this prayer prayed. Never. All right. Other than when Jesus taught his disciples, pray this way. And so um, he's teaching us how to approach our Heavenly Father. And the other thing we, we discussed is that this is a community prayer. It's communal. And sometimes we, because we live in such an individualistic society, we tend to think everything is about me. And prayer is about me and it's my prayer life. But this is a prayer that is given to the disciples. It is given to the community. And we discussed a little bit about the importance of communal or community prayer. 
that we are to gather together as the people of God to pray to God. And so that's one of the reasons why in our church services we have a lot of times of prayer. God's called us to pray and to pray together, to pray as a community. So this is a prayer then that is given to the people of God. And the first um, the first section is just an address to the Father, our Father. Father. And you can listen to last week's sermon um, or get the notes and, and see how we unpack that. And then we saw the first declaration, that is, holy is your name. So let me give you a little bit of a preview. This is where I want to go today. I put up an outline, and uh, I think there, there it is. So this is the outline of the prayer, verses 1 through 4. It begins with an address. Father, the first declaration, holy is your name. That was last week's message. We're not going to cover that again, but this is where we're going to go this week. And we're going to cover the second declaration. The second declaration, basically this is a, a prayer that is comprised of two declarations and three requests. Or address, two declarations and three requests. So the second declaration is your kingdom come. I'll, I'll uh, unpack that a little bit. Oops, go back because I forgot where I'm at. There we go. And then three requests that we will look into three ways, three things that the Lord directs his disciples to pray about. So with that, let's read our, our text and see what God would have for us. So this is the word of God. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, as we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. And this is God's holy word. So let's look at where we're at. We're, we're going to pick up with your kingdom come. This is the second declaration. Your kingdom come. This is a really important thing for us to understand what's going on because the kingdom of God was the primary message of the early church. It was the primary message of Jesus and it continues on through the early church. Sometimes we, we, we forget this message that the kingdom of God is the message of Jesus and the early church. And, and a couple of passages of Scripture at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's at the very beginning of his ministry. And then we see much later on in the ministry of Paul, towards the end of his, uh, towards the end of the book of Acts, this is what we learn. And he, that is Paul, stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. And then we get to the very end of the, of the New Testament in the book of Revelation, chapter 12. Verse 10, we read, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. So from the beginning of Jesus' ministry to the very end, we, we see that the kingdom of God is the message that, the, that Jesus and the disciples preach. And we all ought to be aware of what it means when we talk about the kingdom of God. Now, this is a big subject, and books have been written about it, and papers have been published, and seminars have been given about what is the kingdom of God. I'm going to deal with it in about a very much shorter period of time than that. But 
it is important. Basically, it is dealing with thinking about God as setting up his rule. Now, in one sense, the kingdom has already come. And we're going to see that in probably about two weeks, maybe three weeks. We're going to see Jesus, when he casts out a demon, he says this. He says, but if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come amongst you. So in one sense, the kingdom has come and it has come because the king has come. And the kingdom is wherever the king is. And so the kingdom has come. And so in that sense, the kingdom is already present. But there is also a future sense of the kingdom. In, one, in another sense, the kingdom is still yet to come. And that, we will see, um, gets fulfilled when Christ comes in glory. When Christ comes again, that the kingdom of God will be consummated, that God will set up his rule. And that's what we're talking about. That's what Jesus is talking about when he says, pray this way, your kingdom come. We are praying that God's rule and God's reign would cover the earth and that all humanity would be under his rule and that the, the, there would be the removal of Satan's rule, that God... Um, will rule in the hearts of people. In other words, um, uh, this will be the, this will, when the kingdom comes, it will be um, about the elimination of evil and the manifestation of his righteousness. So we are praying, Lord, come. Look around the world today. Man, it's a mess. And it's getting messier. How can we not say, Lord, come, put an end to this. Establish your rule. Establish your reign. Destroy the works of evil. And bring about your righteousness so that your love and your presence would manifest itself in, in all of the earth. So it is a prayer when we pray, Lord, your kingdom come. We are, set, we are making this statement. We are stating that we desire the elimination of evil and the manifestation of righteousness. And in fact, the Bible concludes very late in Revelation chapter 22, verse 20. What do we read? Come, Lord Jesus. Come. There's a plea that the Lord would come. So I want you to see kind of the flow of our prayer, flow of this text. First of all, in, in the first verse, we see an exaltation of who God is. And then we begin to see a desire for this exalted God to manifest himself in his splendor. So we see the exalted God, Father, and we talked about the intimacy of that term and the beauty of that term. Holy is your name. You are distinct. You are separate. You are not like others in this world. You are not like the gods of this age. You are not like the man-made statues. You are not like the, the, the idols we dream up in, your, in our mind. You are God and we are not. You are holy. And now we are saying, I want you, Father, the Holy God, to manifest yourself here on this earth. What a great prayer. That's what I want you to do, Lord. I want you to display yourself in all of your splendor to overturn the power of wickedness and establish your rule of peace. Now, here's another uh, little aspect, or at least certainly implied, when we talk about, Lord, your kingdom come. We are saying we desire the kingdom of God more than we desire the realm of this world. There is something then when we claim, Lord, your kingdom come, there is something 
we are, st- we are stating something that his presence is greater than everything this world has to offer. If I want the kingdom of God to come more than I want the pleasures of this world, it is saying I desire that more than whatever this world has to offer. And the world has a lot to offer. It's got some good stuff. But Lord, I desire you more than any advancement, any promotion, any entertainment, any, any activity. I want you more than any of that. I want you more than any achievement or any goals. I want you more than anything else. Lord, come. The regenerate heart of the disciple desires God above all worldly things. So many times I run into people, yeah, I really want God to come. That'd be great. But boy, I'd sure like to have a little fun for here first and then he can come. I, I got some stuff I want to accomplish. I want to get married or have kids or I want to you know, achieve a certain status or own a co- certain things or possess certain things. And then once I've done all of that, then, man, that'd be great if God comes. But the disciple says, Lord, all of that is rubbish. Come. I'd rather have you than all of that. So the disciple values the presence of God above the glitter of the world. Lord, come. Father, your name is holy. Come and rule and reign over all things. That's the first, or that's the second declaration. We get to the first request, and the first request is this. Give us each day our daily bread. This seems so simple and so basic. But it's a recognition that God is our provider. Certainly there is an Old Testament allusion to the manna. I read that earlier today. Our first, our Old Testament reading was how God provided bread from heaven. And certainly this is an allusion to that. Lord, just like you provided bread to the people in the wilderness, so provide bread to us on a daily and regular basis. But God provides way more than just food. He provides food. But God provides so much more than that. I I remember a while back, um, one of my non-believing friends sent a meme on Facebook and it showed a family around a table gathered together, praying at the table, Lord, bless this food. And then underneath it it was something like, uh, Lord, we thank you for this food. even though I'm the one who worked for it and paid for it and did all of these things. And, and I replied, I said, I understand how people would think that. It's like, you know, you're the one who got the job and you're the one who got up and went to work and you're the one who um, worked hard and sacrificed a lot, went to the store, bought it, put it on the table, cooked it. I understand all that. But I replied to him and I said, as Christians, here's what we believe. That God, A, gave you that job. God gave you the intellect to be able to have that job. That God gave you the physical abilities to do that job. God gave you a store for which you could go and shop at. In other words, God gave other people jobs like storekeepers jobs. 
God provided a farmer to raise that that for you. That God has provided everything. Yes, you went to work and yes, you put it on the table. But God provided an engineer to make the oven and all of these things. This is what we're thanking God for. God is our provider. Look at this passage in in, um, Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 16 through 19. I think this sums it up well. It says this. Speaking of God, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do good in the end. Beware, he says, beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, then I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish like the nations that the Lord makes perish before you. So shall you perish because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. In other words, I'm going to give you cities that you did not build and farms that you did not plant. And I'm going to take care of you just now when you get these things. Don't forget that all of it comes from my hand. This is what my friend forgot. He had gotten all of those things. He just did not remember, or maybe was never taught, that all of those came from the hand of our Almighty God. And I see this over and over again. We see people come to our church, and I'm sure it's common in other churches, but we've seen many people come and go, and I, and I grieve. is probably one of the most grievous things um, that we deal with and many come needy and just hurting. And then God begins to turn things around in their lives and they get homes and relationships and all of these things. And all of a sudden, God's not as important. And I would just admonish all of us today that as God supplies our needs, we are to remember that everything comes from the hand of our gracious God. Give us this day our daily bread. God is our provider. That's why he calls us to say, God, give us our bread. But not only do we pray, God, give us our, our bread, because not only is God our provider, but it's also a recognition that God is our daily provider. And I think that this is significant. God is our daily provider because um, the Jews had a prayer I referenced this last week. It's called the 18 Benedictions. But they had a prayer, and in it they they sought God's annual provision. God provide for me annually. Jesus wants us to remember that God is our provider every day. He wants us to remember daily that God is, is with us, that God is taking care of us, that God is making provision for us. And it's so easy because I don't know about you, but I'm distracted oftentimes. There's all kinds of things pulling our attention away. I don't know how many, if you've ever gone through a week or a, a, a period of time where you say, you know what? I just haven't given a lot of time. I've been so busy. Things have been pulling at me and I haven't give, given God the time that I need to give him, whether it be in prayer or in reading his word, because we have so many things beeping at us and calling us. I, I don't know. Sometimes you, you pray, and has your phone ever beeped when you're praying? 
And there's this pull. I've got to see what's on the phone. Who's beeping at me? I've been guilty of it. Now my refrigerator beeps at me now. It does. It's like you left the door open. So all of a sudden I've got this new thing. Everything. My inanimate objects are saying, pay attention to me. Meanwhile, the Holy Spirit is speaking to our hearts. I'm here and prodding you and calling you into a place. Don't forget daily to fellowship and to spend time with the God who made you. And I wonder how oftentimes we prioritize external electronic alarms over the inward prompting of the Holy Spirit. This is why we pray daily, Lord, give give us our, our bread daily so that I never forget who you are. A day doesn't go by where I'm not thanking you. A day doesn't go by where I'm not proclaiming your goodness and thanking you. That's the the first request. The second request in this prayer is to that um, you would forgive us our sins. This one's a little interesting because there's both a request and a basis for the request. I'll get to the basis in just a second. But it's a request. And it's a a request for forgiveness. Forgive me of my sins. And this is the interesting thing. So just as bread is basic nourishment for our bodies, so pardon for our souls. So just as bread is basic nourishment for our body, forgiveness is basic nourishment for our souls. Psalm chapter 32, 3 helps us with this. It tells us, for when I kept silent, he's talking about his sin, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. In other words, when, when forgiveness, when I was not seeking you in forgiveness, I wasted away. Just like if I don't eat food, my body's going to waste away. If I don't seek the Lord's forgiveness, there is a wasting away. This prayer then assumes that the disciple needs a regular time of confession for conviction. For, for forgiveness. Just like we need food every day, we need to come before our Heavenly Father and seek His forgiveness. Now, I want to make something clear. This is a prayer that is given to disciples. It is a prayer given to His people. It is not a prayer that is given to unbelievers. In other words, what I'm saying, that this prayer for forgiveness is not a reference to entrance into the family of God. We pray, we, we pray to, for a person to come into the family of God. Repent, and, and repent of your sins and call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. Often prayer accompanies that time of repentance and confession. That's not what's going on here because this is being offered to the believer, to the disciple. So this is not in reference of how one enters into the family of God, but rather it is reference to the regular purifying that the believer needs. It is a prayer to disciples. Maybe a, a, a better Example of this is that the image is not of the courtroom where guilt and innocence is determined, but the image is of the family room where the child confesses sin, not to become or remain in the family, but that nothing would spoil the relationship. Does that make sense? That it's not the courtroom where we come before God asking his forgiveness um, and, and repenting of our sins and seeking um, uh, 
his pardon so that we might enter into a relationship. Rather, this is the child of God coming into the family room saying, Dad, you told me the right way to go. And I spurned what you said. And I I disregarded everything you said and did the exact opposite. And as soon as I did, I began running from you. I, I, I didn't want to have, uh, I didn't want to be in the same room with you because I knew that I'd violated your loving words. So I'm coming before you now. And I don't want that to be a hindrance between you and me. That's the prayer. Let me state this. If you've never called upon the name of the Lord, if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, if you are not a disciple of Jesus Christ, I want to remind you that it is imperative that you call upon the name of the Lord, that you repent of your sins. Remember Jesus' first sermon was, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I'm pleading with you, repent, call upon the name of the Lord, and you will be saved, and we would love to have um, a conversation with you about what it means to follow after the Lord. But if you are here to this day, and you are a follower of Christ, and I'm imploring you on a regular basis, come into the family room. And call upon the name of the Lord and say, Father, this was my action. This was my attitude. This is what I failed to do. And I don't want that to be between us. I want to be in a right relationship with you. This is one of the reasons why we start our service with a prayer of confession. Seems to make sense, doesn't it? How can we come before a holy God and sing his praises if there might be something between us? Shouldn't we begin a service, a worship service, with a time of, Lord, here we are. So we begin with words of adoration and praise, but then we, because that seems only right, but it also seems only right to say, Lord, just want to make sure before we start singing songs about your glorious splendor, before we start talking about your beauty, before I listen to your word, before we open up any other thing of prayer, before I ask you for anything in prayer, Lord, I've I, I got to make sure that my heart's right with you. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive our sins. And here's the basis for, notice that little key word there, for. We ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. In other words, when remember, this is a community prayer. This applies to the individual, but certainly it applies to the community. When we are sinned against as an individual or even as a church, we then, the disciple, needs to remind himself that we apply the same grace to the one who has offended us as God gave to us. Certainly this is made clear. I think I put a passage of text up there. Well, I guess not. I'll read you one. Colossians 3.13 We read this. And above all else, and above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Oops, I missed that. Hang on. 13. Bearing with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. So here the community now reflects the image of God. We display God when we forgive one another. How? Because God has forgiven us. 
God is a forgiving God. That's one of his attributes. That's one of his perfections. And we are then to display that same characteristic, that same perfection towards others. So when we are sinned against, we apply the same grace that God has given to us. And by doing so, we bear the image of God. And this is especially difficult when we're hurt deeply and repeatedly. This is probably best seen in the person of Jesus Christ who was hurt deeply and repeatedly and was nailed on a cross by his enemies, by his creation, the ones he made. And as they mocked and jeered and bartered for his clothing, as they hurt him, separated him from those whom he loved, what were his words? Father, forgive them. Man. That's the standard. That's the standard. Lord, forgive us and forgive everybody um, just, as, just as, in the same way that we forgive others. The other thing that this does when we seek forgiveness uh, from God and seek forgive and, and forgive others um, it's humbling. It's a humbling. I don't know. I don't know about you. Sometimes it's because Simone's the closest person in in my life. She's probably the one I sin against the most. Um, and it's humbling to go and say, "Well, Simone, again. Here it is again. It's humbling. It's one thing to do it once, but when you got to do it twice, it's you got to do it like." 50 times. It's humbling. And yet, that's like one of the hallmarks of being a, a follower of Christ. I think this is why he has us praying forgiveness, not only for the, 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 the reestablishment of the relationship, but also because humility is one of the cornerstones of being a disciple. You can't be a disciple until you humble yourself before the Almighty God, before you can say, you're God and I'm not. And it continues on through the rest of our lives that I am a flawed and imperfect human being growing in grace, but I'm messing up all the time. Not only just messing, I'm sinning against God and against my brothers and my sisters. Lord, forgive me and help me to be forgiving. And so it's easy to point the finger at somebody else. It's much more challenging to consider our own actions. And this is what Jesus has us doing. He has us remembering our own actions. So that's the the second request. So we have, give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our our sins for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And this also goes as a church. Remember, this is for the community. We, We as a church might do wrong or we might be wronged and we forgive. The final request is this, and lead us not into temptation. Now, this one here is a bit tricky, isn't it? So here's what's tricky. You're going, I don't know, how is that tricky? Well, here's how it's tricky. It's tricky in this way, because James in chapter 1 tells us that God will never tempt us with evil. 
So why are we praying that God wouldn't lead us into temptation if it's something that he won't do anyways? Likewise, earlier in James, James says the trials are good for you. So maybe if God won't, maybe, so we can't pray that God wouldn't lead us into temptation because that's something he wouldn't do, but maybe he's leading us into trial. But why would he not lead, why would we want him not to lead us into trial if it's good for us? So there's the trickiness. So what do we do with this verse? I'm going to give you a, a suggestion. There are, there are a number of different ways that this has been addressed, but I think the best way, and I'm not going to get down to the gory details. I know a few of you, you grammar geeks want me to get into the gory details, but they are gory. It's really messy. So I'll spare us that. We, we can talk afterwards. But I'm going to understand the verb in this See, I'm already getting there. Lead. <clears throat> there are many different ways we can, can use words in Scripture. And what I'm going to suggest is not stepping outside of the bounds of Scripture, nor am I trying to justify anything, but I think with great care, it is a safe way to understand lead us not in a permissive sense. What I mean by that is per, don't permit us to enter into temptation. That would be a permissive use of this verb. So we would say this, do not permit us to enter into temptation. Here's where we end up with that. First of all, grammatically, it, it's, it's allowable. It also fits with the context and it fits with the, with the broader context of Scripture because here's what we end up saying. It's an acknowledgement that I am weak. It is an acknowledgement of the weakness of the human heart. It's an admission that if God were to withdraw His gracious presence for even one moment, I would fly off the handle and find myself in wickedness. Lord, do not allow my wicked heart even for the briefest second to do what it wants to do. Because if you withhold even a moment of grace, off I go. Lord, don't permit me to go there. Don't permit me to fulfill my rebellious desires. And this makes sense because what did we just pray? Lord, forgive me. Now what we're praying is, Lord, don't let me get into situations where I need forgiveness. I, I need forgiveness. Yeah, let's deal with that. And now, Lord, I don't want to be back in those positions. Do not permit my wicked heart to go where my wicked heart will naturally go. So that was, that's how we would bring up this permissive sense of this word. It's an attitude then that desires to flee temptation. The mature disciple wants to flee temptation. The immature disciple says, how close can I get without actually sinning? The mature disciple is saying, ah, I see sin over there. I'm going that way as fast as I possibly can. The immature says, well, what if I just went one more step? Would that be sin? No. And one more, that's not sin. That is, okay, I won't go there. 
This is the prayer saying, I don't want to be in that person. I want to be the guy who flees sin. I th- that's the sense how, how, how I would get there. So it's an attitude that wants to flee temptation rather than to test how close we can get before crossing the line. I have people all the time coming and, and asking me, you know, is uh, if I did this, would that be sin? Well, no. Well, then if I did that, Listen, there's a heart issue here. So, Lord, we pray that your kingdom would come, that you would rule in, our, in this world. We pray, Father God, that we recognize your daily provision. Lord, we also recognize that we need spiritual provision and the forgiveness of our sins, and we forgive others. And, Lord, don't let me go where my heart would naturally go, keep me from such things. That's our prayer. So I'll, I'll conclude with this. Remember that this Lord's Prayer, this model prayer, this disciple's prayer is one. It is a prayer for the people of God. It was given to his people. It was given to the disciples. And you'll notice all of the pronouns are plural. So it is a communal or corporate prayer. And it begins with our Holy Father. Our Holy Father, come quickly and rule in all of your splendor and in all of your fullness. And daily, Lord, we are dependent upon you and we are thankful as you provide for our physical needs, so also you provide for our spiritual needs. Let us not be stingy towards others with what you have abundantly given us, namely forgiveness. And Lord, we pray that you would protect our hearts so that we would not sin against you. This is the prayer that Jesus has given to his people and we extend to you. In the next few weeks, we're going to learn a whole lot more about prayer, but this should suffice for now. Let's work on these things this week. So, with that, let's just spend maybe a few moments just kind of uh, well, just reflecting a little bit on what the Lord may Um, want you to do with this particular passage of text. Maybe there's something here that has convicted you or maybe you've learned something, but let's let's spend a few moments in silent reflection and just allow the Lord to speak to us um, through his word.